Well, in the summer of 94, uh, my family and I, we arrived home from vacation. It had been a long drive. Uh, I think we might have ordered some pizza, took our shoes off, sat down on the couch, and uh, turned on the NBA Finals. And about 30 minutes into watching that game, it was all of a sudden interrupted by breaking news of a car chase on a Los Angeles freeway. And a news helicopter was filming a white Ford Bronco speeding down the highway and behind the Bronco, a sea of police cruisers. And of course, I'm talking about this drive, the Bronco of O.J. Simpson. And that coverage that began that night was only the beginning of what would become a media circus around this trial. And this media circus, it spanned over 11 months from November of 94 to October of 95. The trial aired on a variety of networks. It was broken down day and night by all the cable news outlets. The producer of the Today Show said that it was the biggest story he'd ever seen. In terms of media coverage, it was given more coverage than the Oklahoma City bombing and the war in Bosnia combined. When Russian President Boris Yeltsin visited the U.S., his first question to President Clinton was, do you think O.J. did it? (laughs) One of the attorneys, Marsha Clark, reflected that when the trial began, all of the networks were getting these hate mail letters because people's soap operas were being interrupted by the Simpson trial. But then what happened was the people who liked soap operas got addicted to the trial And they got really upset when the trial was over and people would come up to Clark on the street and say, I loved your show. That might explain some things about where we're at today with news and and political coverage. I remember at school, uh, we watched the day that the verdict was read. It turned on all the the televisions in the classroom. And the O.J. Simpson trial, of course, was called the trial of the century. And the end of the book of Acts is kind of like that. Now, to be clear, I'm not making a comparison between the Apostle Paul and O.J. Simpson. But it is interesting that of all the things that Paul or Luke could have covered about the early church, he spends the last third of Acts on the trial of Paul. The trial began in chapter 22 in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin or the leadership council of the temple until Paul's life was threatened and he was whisked away by the Roman authorities to a neighboring province called Caesarea where his trial could go on safely. His case was transferred to the Caesarean governor Felix, who we met just a moment ago. And as we'll see, the trial doesn't end with Felix, but Paul will go on to stand before other officials and then ultimately and presumably Caesar Augustus himself. He's appealed to Caesar. If we go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we there find the outline of Acts in the words of Jesus. Jesus had promised that his good news would reach Jerusalem, the surrounding countryside of Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And you don't get much more ends of the earth-ish than Caesar Augustus himself. The mission of Jesus will come about according to plan but perhaps not according to Paul's plan or the disciples' plan. And I think that's just a little interesting tidbit of learning here in Acts. 
is we often feel God leading us in a particular direction, but it doesn't work out exactly as we plan. It works out as he plans. As Paul worked his way through the legal system, as he spent years in imprisonment, these were the years that he wrote many of the New Testament letters, declared the gospel before Roman officials for all to hear. And so it's easy to see why in the first century, Paul's trial was the trial of the century. As Paul stands before Felix this morning, maybe a cable news sort of way, almost to get an inside look uh, into the trial and look specifically at three aspects. First, Paul's prosecution, then Paul's defense, and then what we can learn from his imprisonment. And to be clear, this is more than a courtroom drama. Certainly Luke's intent is not sensationalism, but there is something here that I believe will change your life this week. Let's follow along here, starting first with Paul's prosecution. In Acts chapter 24, verse 1 through 2, we read this. Five days later, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and an attorney, a certain Tertullius, and they reported their case against Paul to the governor, that is Felix. When Paul had been summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, we're going to follow along here just in a moment, but we're introduced to a cast of characters there. The first of which is Ananias. You might remember that name if you've been following the story of Acts. He's the current high priest, the main leader at the temple in Jerusalem. He's the judge of original jurisdiction, except Ananias is not an impartial, just judge. His agenda is not only to maintain his own sense of power, but to maintain this fragile alliance between Rome and Israel. Ananias is a politician who feels like Paul and these new Christians actually have the ability to undermine this fragile partnership. Ironically, the party upholding justice in the story so far is not the temple, but is the secular government. And the desire of Ananias here is to get Rome, the government, back on his side, back on the temple side and ultimately put Paul to death and to put away this Christian movement. So what does Ananias naturally do? He hires a celebrity attorney, a Johnny Cochran, if you will, named Tertullus. We don't know much about his story, but we can tell from his story that he's educated in both Jewish and Roman law. He's a fantastic orator. Maybe he's on retainer at the temple. We don't know, but he's definitely hired by temple leadership. Luke isn't giving us around the clock coverage here, but rather gives us the highlights and the summary of the trial, just as he has all along through various descriptions and acts. He begins to do this in detailing the prosecution's case in verse three. There Tertullius begins, your excellency, because of you, we have long enjoyed peace and reforms have been made for this people because of your foresight. We welcome this in every way and everywhere with utmost gratitude, but to detain you no further, I beg you to hear us briefly with your customary graciousness. You can hear in that that Tertullus is hitting all the right notes with Felix. 
Whether this description of Felix is accurate or not, Tertullus starts out by getting on the right side of Felix. He notes that Felix's reign has been marked by peace, reform, foresight. And in the first century, these are kind of the utmost virtues that would describe uh, a really proficient um, and sovereign ruler of Rome in the first century. They're, they're the most virtuous ideals of a Roman ruler. And so as Tertullius is spitting all this out, Felix is saying, yes, yes, tell, tell me more, to say more. The reality is, is that Felix is far from the vir- virtuous ideal. Later in this passage, we find out that he's married to a Jewish woman named Drusilla. Drusilla was originally married to another ruler when she met Felix. Felix convinced Drusilla to leave her then husband and marry him. And despite his wife being Jewish, Felix was notorious for his brutality and oppression of the Jewish population. He was one of the primary instigators of what would become the Jewish war against the Roman government in 66 AD. That war led to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and it's never been built to this day, rebuilt. So this is why Tertullius notes the quote-unquote customary graciousness of Felix in dealing with pestilent fellows, agitators, ringleaders of sex. These are all descriptions that Tertullius specifically chose to describe Paul. And as Tertullius is saying this to Felix, this is a bit of a wink-wink sort of maneuver where Tertullius is using shorthand to help Felix reach a speedy verdict. In other words, it's kind of code for, for Tertullius saying to Felix, we all know of your brutality against the Jewish population. And you know the types of people that you normally punish. Paul is one of those types. Tertullius goes on to specifically charge Paul on two accounts. First, disorderly conduct. Second, profaning the temple. In the original account, if you go back to Acts 21, we find the truth. And the truth is, is that the cause of the disorder wasn't Paul, but it was a group of Jews from Asia who formed a mob to kill Paul. And then second, Paul wasn't profaning the temple, but as he'll explain more in a minute, he was there in an act of worship. But as we can see, we can already get the sense. This is the type of situation where justice seems to be lost in a sea of unrighteousness, corruption, and distortion. Maybe you've had an experience like this in your career, in your family, maybe even in the church. Martin Luther King Jr. certainly faced this sea of unrighteousness, this corruption, this distortion, this overwhelming battle. Certainly we see this playing out here and now with the people of Ukraine. You know, houseless families here in our city are often overwhelmed by circumstances outside of their control. You think about the little girls of Malawi, Africa that Bethany Robbins described last week who are sexually abused and then cast out of their village. In all of these situations, how do we have any hope 
in the face of overwhelming injustice. Well, that leads us secondly to Paul's defense. And Felix's preference is to simply follow the lead of Tertullus, issue Paul a sentence of death, and move on with his life, his next order of business. But Paul is a Roman citizen. So Felix is bound by law to hear Paul out. And as Paul begins to speak, we know something's different about him right from the start. Paul tells Felix that he makes his defense cheerfully. That somehow, someway, amidst the sea of injustice, Paul's just happy to be there. That's paradoxical. How in the world does that happen? I mean, imagine getting a speeding ticket, appearing in traffic court, going before the judge, and the first thing out of your mouth is, Judge, I'm just happy to be here today. That's probably not what you're thinking. And yet this is what Paul says right from the start. We begin to get a sense that something else is going on within Paul. And yet it's not naivete. Because Paul goes on to make very, uh, three very rational counterpoints. First, in verse 12, Paul states the truth. He wasn't found disrupting the temple or the city. And the prosecution showed no proof that that was the case. Second, in verse 14, Paul makes a confession, not the confession that Tertullus would have wanted, but a confession to the fact that he's following Jesus, commonly at that time called the way, and in so doing, he's only being faithful to Judaism. Paul makes a powerful theological point that following Jesus is faithfulness to the prophets of the Old Testament and is faithfulness to the just judgment of God over all that is to come. This causes him, in his own words, to always have a clear conscience before God and people. Paul has been faithful to God. He's been faithful to Judaism in following Jesus. And then third, in in verse 17, Paul clarifies his purpose in Jerusalem. It was to deliver this financial gift that he had collected from the Gentile churches that was being given to these struggling Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Paul was there not only giving that gift, but offering sacrifices at the temple and completing a rite of purification. Paul makes it clear that it was a group of Jews from the east, from Asia, that caused all this trouble. And then very shrewdly, Paul says, I wish they were here to make this accusation, but there doesn't seem to be anyone else here that can attest to the report that Tertullus just gave. So it's right there, very shrewdly, very rationally, that Paul puts Felix in a pinch. Paul's not done. He reaches a final conclusion that's nothing less than a stroke of genius. And we find it in verse 20, 21. He says, let these men here tell what crime they had found when I stood before the council, unless it was this one sentence that I called out while standing before them. It is about the resurrection of the dead. I am on trial before you today. So on the one hand, Paul truthfully recounts the end of his first trial before temple leadership. 
And as we saw in Acts 21, that trial devolved into a theological debate about the resurrection between these two sects of Judaism's, Judaism, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And Paul knows that Felix will be unwilling to get involved in these sorts of intramural debates among Jewish theologians. But I think on the other hand, Paul is pointing to a deeper, more profound, more pervasive truth that really forms the climax of this trial. He really was on trial for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ had not risen from the dead, Jesus would have been nothing more than another first century rabbi. Paul would not be following Jesus were it not for the Damascus Road encounter. Paul certainly would not be willing to face injustice, imprisonment, or even death if Jesus was merely another teacher. So it begs the question, what did the resurrection mean for Paul? What does the resurrection mean for us? The whole trial has led to this one word. What's so different about Jesus is that he wasn't just another rabbi in the first century. He wasn't just another political revolutionary put to death. And instead, what was different about Jesus is that he rose from the dead according to the promises of God. And not just for Jesus, but for all of Israel. And for all of the whole world. The resurrection means that God's new world is breaking in to this old world in the here and now. And here in Portland, we talk a lot about our desire for justice. But there's only one problem. We think we're the just ones and everyone else is unjust. We just need to fix those people, you know, whoever those people might be in your heart and mind. The gospel that Paul is basing his life on is radically different. It says, no, no, no. We are all messed up. Each and every one of us, we are unjust before God and with others. And we are all deserving of God's just judgment. And in the cross, that just judgment of God, it moved from final days into human history, into the here and now. That just judgment was placed upon God himself in the person of his son, Jesus, so that it wouldn't be placed on us. And instead of receiving judgment, we receive life. And not just life one day, although that's true, but it's an eternal quality of life that just like Judgment, just like the resurrection, it moves into the here and now. It's not a life that we're necessarily waiting for, but one that begins to unfold within us because of the power at work, the power of God as we look to him in faith. And so trusting Christ, it leads us to leave the old world behind, the rule of Felix, so to speak and embrace this new world of God, which is the rule of Christ. It's because of the cross and the resurrection that this whole new world of God is beginning to dawn first in our soul 
And it's beginning to spill out everywhere in our lives. And that's exactly what we see here in this last point in Paul's imprisonment. Here we see the difference the resurrection of Jesus can make in our lives. In verse 22 through 23, we find out that Felix refuses to render a verdict. He's caught between a rock and a hard place. If he releases Paul, it will upset the fragile alliance between Rome and Israel. If he finds Paul guilty without evidence, Felix is going to be in trouble with Caesar. (laughs) So Felix is stuck. So what does he do? He does what we often do when we're faced with a very difficult decision. He just opts not to make a decision. So he leaves Paul in prison for a two-year period. And in fact, Felix often pays Paul a visit, hoping that maybe some of that money that Paul collected from the the Gentile churches across the Mediterranean region might might make its way into his pocket. With the right amount of money, Felix could probably figure out something for Paul's release. could figure that out. In the final verses, we see why this was the trial of the century. And I would even argue the trial of all of human history. Paul is held in prison for two years. But he doesn't play victim. Instead, he lives from this inner strength, this this place of strength. Every time Felix comes for a visit, Paul knows he's there for a bribe. And yet Paul talks about what the gospel means for Felix's life. As you do that character profile of Felix, we can understand now why Paul was talking to him about Christ Jesus, about true justice, about self-control, and about the judgment to come. And instead of Paul being frightened by circumstance, Felix is the one who becomes frightened. Felix is seemingly having this growing awareness of this gap of living in the old world and what's possible in the new. And this leads us to a profound conclusion. Paul is living inside a hope even as he lives inside a cell. Paul is living inside the hope of the resurrection, even as he lives inside of a cell. Christianity is a bit of quantum physics, of time travel, parallel universes. This new world of a reigning Jesus, it begins in our heart, it spills out into our lives, even as we live in the old world. And this has two effects as we see here in the life and in the heart of Paul. The first effect is that resurrection orients us toward true justice. As we see with Felix, we will never be able to rely on culture or politicians or governing officials or institutions for true north. And in fact, personal and systematic injustice, they go hand in hand because all of these things are made up of people. People who are broken, people who are lost without the true north of the gospel. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in a sermon entitled Drum Major Instinct gets at this point. He says, yes, Jesus, I want to be on your right or your left side, not for any selfish reason. 
I want to be on your right or your left side, not in terms of some political kingdom or ambition, but I just want to be there in love, in justice, in truth, and in commitment to others so that we can make of this old world a new world. That's the power of the resurrection. That's what King's getting at. That's what Paul's getting at. Second effect is the resurrection hope makes us resilient. It makes us resilient. Some of us have experienced what it means to work day in and day out in a nonprofit. It can be exhausting. And if you try to pursue justice in your own strength, eventually you run out of gas. If you look to cultural circumstance or political elections to give you peace, you will never have it. If you need everything in your life to be in order to experience happiness, it will always evade you. The old desert mystics said this, go to your cell, it will teach you everything. There's something about coming to terms with the quietness of our heart. To find God there. To experience the power of the resurrection. And so it's no coincidence that during this two-year imprisonment, Paul had the time to write the New Testament letters, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. He was living from a resurrection hope. He's living inside of another kind of hope. My family and I went and served uh, Family Promise, which is a nonprofit here in our city that comes alongside houseless families uh, before they lose housing, while they're in transition and uh, in the transition to, to stability. And uh, as a family, we went and we served dinner. It's something we've been wanting to do, hard to do with our schedule during the school year. And we went and, and it really became the highlight of our week. And uh, we were able to hang out with this family and, uh, and serve them dinner. And, uh, and they had two special need kids and then uh, two little boys um, that were like six and nine or something. And, uh, and we played with them for like three hours until they went to bed at 9 p.m. And we were tired. And my son Jude said, man, dad, I'm tired. Were we like that? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, yes, Jude, this is why I brought you here. This is what it means to be a father. You know, <clears throat> I had a moment at the end of the night with the dad And he, uh, <clears throat> he had woken up to go to work at like 5.30. And he didn't get home that night until 7.30. And uh, he kind of ate dinner by himself, went back to his room. And he came out at the end of the night. He's a real congenial guy. Came out the end of the night and he apologized to me and he said, hey, I'm so sorry I've been like distant. And uh, he's like, I just had a long day. I was like, hey, brother, you don't have to tell me about it. I was like, I got three kids at home, as you saw, you know. Um, I get it. Uh, Long days. And especially in that moment, like, I just realized, like, we're living in a city. And there's really no difference of what we're all going through fundamentally. Now, 1.7 million people in the U.S. live on a cash income of $2 per person per day. 
have subprime credit. 75% of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. All of us easily could find ourselves in transition as it relates to housing. And so as a church, we didn't go there to serve because some downtrodden people needed our help. Or because we just need a little boost in our own virtue and self-righteousness. We're there because God's new world has begun in our heart. And it's so big and it's so massive that it's spilling out into our neighborhood streets. It's spilling out to our workplace. It's spilling out into the city. It's spilling out and eventually this God's new world is going to consume the whole universe. And to be a Christian is to say, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. But in the here and now, from time to time, we all find ourselves like Paul inside a cell. Some place where we feel stuck, trapped, confounded, where all that's superficial is stripped away. And it's there, uniquely there, that we look to Christ rather than all the other stuff. And it's in that moment that we have the unique opportunity to discover the power of the resurrection. And no matter where we find ourselves in the old world, there is a new world growing in our heart spilling out into the universe. Let me pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you are always more ready to hear than we are to pray, to give more than we either desire or deserve. Pour down upon us the abundance of your mercy, forgiving us those things of which our conscience is afraid, and giving us those good things for which we are not worthy to ask except through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.